Hello and welcome to the latest TES International Podcast with me, Dan Worth. Our guest for this episode is Julia Knight, the principal of Eaton House International School in Bahrain, who chats to us about the important topic of female leadership. She discusses her own career path to the top and what it took to get there, the barriers that still exist for other women hoping to reach leadership positions and what we can do to remove them, and why it's important for the sector as a whole to have our diversity of leaders. All that and lots more on the latest TES International Podcast. Hi, Julia. Thanks for joining the TES International Podcast. Wonderful to chat with you. And I think this will be a very interesting conversation, sort of talking about leadership, female leadership, and what needs to be done to make sure that that sort of continues to go in the, in the right direction in the international school market. Um, you yourself as, as a leader of a major school in Bahrain, which we'll come on to. But to start with, why don't we sort of, could you give us a little bit of a sort of a, a short uh, you know, overview of your career history that's led you to be in, in a leadership position. You know, how did you get there? Both, I guess, whether you started in the UK or was internationally your first foray into teaching overall, or what about all that as well? Hi, Dan. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me on. Female leadership is actually one of my passions and being able to talk about how to, you know, diversify and empower women in education is really, really important. So thank you. Um, I started teaching in 2004 and I started off as an LSA in my old secondary school. And that led on to becoming um, a graduate teacher on the GTP programme in 2005. And then I stayed in London until 2010. I'd worked my way up the middle leadership ladder to um, head of year. Um, And then I left in 2012 to Thailand for four years to become head of English at a small private school on the outskirts of Bangkok. Um, That was interesting. Um, for lots of different reasons, um, but mostly the the complete culture shock from coming from a, a majority white um, comprehensive in southeast London to a majority Thai local Thai uh, private school where English was certainly the second language that presented many challenges professionally um, and also personally living in the in Bangkok where the language barrier is um, quite acute. Um, and then I moved to another school in Bangkok where I was assistant head of Key Stage 3. So I was back in my pastoral role, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then it was interrupted slightly because I had a baby. And I think most women will understand that babies come along and they interrupt your careers. Um, and then we made the move to Bahrain. We'd always wanted to live in the Middle East. And Bahrain comes up very high on friendly places to live. And I moved, I'm going to say sideways, I'm not going to say back down because it's not about, it's not, wasn't about moving down, it was about sidestepping. I sidestepped into a head of year position at a a large school in Bahrain. Um, And after four really successful, really happy years, it just became apparent that I wanted more and I could feel that kind of bubble rising in you going, I want to do that. I think I could do that, you know, and that pushed me on. Um, And then serendipity always plays a part in job hunting. Um, and I found a really, really good role as vice principal at a school in Bahrain that was beginning just right at the beginning of its journey. And then a few months later, the executive principal, who happens to be a woman, which is a very big plus for me, uh, she promoted me to principal. So I've had a really varied um, career. And this role has actually moved me away from the senior school and into the infant school. So I've gone from teaching scary year 11s to even scarier year ones and the only way that I can equate that is like teaching flamingos to line dance that's my only way that I can describe it to anybody that's made that move but I made the move specifically so that I could learn more about the whole school 
because international mm. schools tend to be all through from nursery all the way to 18. And it was a part of the school that I had no real understanding of apart from as a parent through my own children. Um, so it was important for me to look at how that part of the school was run in order to be effective as a, an executive head when I get there. Mm. Well, that's that's a great story. And I suppose one one quick question, which I think is slightly tangential, but but maybe related, is what what led you to move internationally? Why you make that big transition in your life? Was it just like that desire to, to, to do something different almost? I think I'm going to go back to that phrase, babies interrupt things. Um, and they also make you question what's important. So my second son was born in 2010 and I was head of year of a 367 strong cohort. I had 14 tutors and I had a fantastic personal assistant. And I knew those children and their parents and their lives inside out. Um, And it became very apparent that those children, as important as they were, were more important than my own child. So on a Monday morning, I would take um, my son to the childminders and I'd have to leave early to pick him up by 3.30, which obviously meant that that 3.30 to 5, which I used to work quite happily, was interrupted He'd go back on Tuesday and then on Wednesday morning, my husband would take him to grandma's where he would stay overnight, which meant I could work late. And then so he would stay over Thursday night. And then sometimes on a Friday, I'd get a phone call about 5.30. I've just put him to bed. He's had some dinner. He's fine. You can just pick him up in the morning. And that, as beautiful and supportive as it was, was heartbreaking because I was seeing my baby less and less. And that was no fault of mine. It was no fault of my husband's. It was literally a case of how do two young parents living in London cope with the childcare, cope with the the levels of job that we both had and do them well and maintain your relationship. Like it's, and I know that I'm not special. I know that my story is probably, you know, concurred (laughs) throughout the land, but it did make me reevaluate what was the point. And I think the crunch point came when I was sat in the school waiting for police and social services to turn up for a safeguarding issue. And had this young person who was, you know, devastated to be told that she had to go home that evening. And I just thought there is no point me being here. The services have been decimated through cuts and obviously that got worse after I left. And it just, it was harrowing. So we had a really good opportunity to move to Thailand and we took it with both hands. Yeah, well, I mean, and obviously it does show that, again, as I kind of thought it does, there's a sort of a link there, isn't it, to leadership and you're talking about, you know, family and children and obviously you, you, where you talked to the start there, you clearly had and have always had aspirations to sort of keep going up the ladder and where that could take you. And so it sounds like moving internationally opened up those completely new set of doors and opportunities and, and, you, and you followed them. I mean, do, is that a fair though? Do you think you, you have always sort of, if you look back and you think, yeah, actually I've always sort of wanted to be a leader. Did you know you wanted to be a leader? Or is it something that sort of organically grew as you kind of, as you said, you saw it, I could do that. I'd like a go at that. I am the girl that was called bossy at school. Um, I am that girl who would walk into a room and reorganise it. And I make no apologies for that. I always wanted to have a career that put me in a position of leadership. And as the older I've got, the more I've realised that that privileged position is not about power and control. That privileged position is about making your mark on the world. Uh, And that to me was really important but actually, the, the climb to international leadership is probably a lot harder and a lot steeper um, than it would be back in the UK, primarily because it's a very male, white male dominated um, culture. And I'm not suggesting that there's no place for that. But diversity means that you see things through different lenses. And one of the things I'm very clear about is when I moved from senior school to infant school, 
And people were calling me mad. I mean, anybody that knows me knows that in front of my teenagers, I'm very rock hard and you don't mess with Miss Knight because she'll get you. And, you know, but I'm also very loving. So it was a real balance for me to kind of make that move. But I did it so that I could see what teachers were going through in those stages. How do I know as an English teacher or a head of year or an assistant head of Key Stage 3, how do I know what a primary school teacher goes through or an EYFS teacher goes through? So I needed to walk in those shoes to understand it. And for me, that is a learning curve every single day. It's the best form of CPD that you could ever have. And, and I mean, obviously then, so like you said, you sounds like, yes, you always have had that sort of innate desire to, to go places and do things and, and climb the ladder. And interestingly, you say you think international was harder, but you, you have managed it though. So, I mean, do you do you sort of look at that and think, is it a case of, well, I knew I wanted, I went about getting it? Or you, you, I think you used the word serendipity earlier. Do you think some of it has been luck? I mean, how tough as the journey was I guess I'm saying but you've made it so is it does should anyone be able to do it or is it did you have to really go through some hard you know crash through some walls to make that happen I think when you I think well first of all if you wanted to become a head teacher in the UK there's that qualifications list isn't there and some of those are preferred but in the international market it's it's desirable becomes an absolute must you must have an MA you must have the the qualifications for being a head teacher and actually, some of those things are out of reach for for mums and, and for women who have had children because a they cost money, um, b they mean a lot of time. And you know, when you've got children and you've got young children, time is something that's ri- ridiculously precious. Um, but it also means that there are gaps in your career. So, had I have stayed in my south southeast London school without a baby, I probably would have been ahead years ago. Because, and it's interesting that all of my heads of department um, that I've worked for in different schools, the majority of them have been older ladies with no children. And when I look at the head teachers, I've got a friend back in the UK. She was one of the youngest head teachers in the world, uh, in the world, (laughs) in the UK. And she's just had a baby. There's not many women out there that have got young children and made it into headship. It's either come at a different point in their life or a decision that they've made not to have children. But women that do have children um, often find their careers are uh, interrupted. Um, one of the things that, you know, it takes away from um, women is the the ability to do an MA or the ability to climb the ladder. And my career on my CV, it looks like I stepped down. And I said and before that I would never talk about it being a side, it was a sideways move. And that for me was really important. And my head teacher, my current school, the executive head, we had a very long conversation about um, my CV. And she totally understood the reasons why I stepped down. But I think if you were, well, I know this has happened because I sent my CV to many schools about becoming um, an assistant head or a deputy head. I hadn't even considered the, the, the possibility of being a principal at that stage. I was quite happy to move back into assistant or deputy positions. And I know that my CV didn't look good. And I can see that as a, as a male lens looking through that. Oh, well, she's taken a step down. Oh, and she was only two years as a head of department and she was only two years as an assistant head. And then she's stepped down for four years. Mm. And I can, and I can see the motions. But when you talk to a woman who's had children, has worked abroad most of their lives and they've raised their children abroad and you say to them, well, actually, I did it for my family. You, you have a much more empathetic and sympathetic viewpoint. And that's why diversity is so important in schools to give you those different lenses. 
And it's not just the lens through the eyes of a woman. It, it, it could be through your ethnicity. It could be through your um, experience as a parent or your teaching experience. But you really do need to have a range of voices that are interesting and shape the vision of a school. Yes, you're absolutely right. There's so, there's so many interesting elements to all that. Isn't I mean, one, one quick question. I mean, did you, on your CV, when you sent it out, did you sort of acknowledge the gaps? Did you write in what it was? Did you try and sort of write round it again? Because that's something I can imagine others listening to this, whether that's a male or, or a female sort of leader thinking about that scenario. I mean, is it helpful to sort of have it explained? Or does, do you think that almost is, for some people, do you think they'd see it and think, oh, well, that's no excuse or, oh, you know, it could be interpreted in the wrong way and people might put people off putting that down on their CV, maybe. I think so. But I also think that when you're job hunting, it's it does take a little bit of luck, a little bit of serendipity, a little bit of fate, a little bit of destiny. I do believe that there are elements that come together. Um, but if I was to write in my CV, I took a decision for my family, well, that could be interpreted by different people in different ways that could be a oh she, you know she can't really hack it you know that could be that that could be mm-hmm. that or it, you know in in the eyes of somebody that's very family orientated that could be very positive so you so you don't ever really know which way to play it and actually what you need to do is search for the school or search for the ethos that's right for you and so rather than searching for the job title you should really be looking at the schools first to just decide which ones you want to work in and when I looked up Eaton House, it ticked every single box on my wish list for a school. Mm. Um, and that's really important because as my children attend the school, I need to make sure that it's good enough for my children and even better for other people's. Yeah, that's that, that's a very good point. And do you think um, with the with regards, like, I mean, that, how how many schools did you have to look at though? Did you look did you look at quite a lot of websites for schools of jobs and then sort of get a sense of yeah, I don't think this is going to work for me? And what what sort of things? are you looking for or, or or not seeing that you want to see? I think background checks are hugely important and international education has so many big uh, chains of schools that you really do need to do your um, due diligence into those chains of schools. Now, I'm not suggesting that chains of schools are a bad thing. My own school is a chain of schools. We have 125 around the world. But it's really about the vision and the ethos of behind that know what is it that is the driving force and I think I suppose the best term I've heard is what's the why of the school um and and that's that is something that you might not be able to pick up from a website because they can be quite fancy you might not even be able to pick it up from the social media um but you but you do need to investigate it so I I think really when you're job hunting internationally you need to start with what your purpose is what do you want to do where do you want your career to go and I'm a big believer in having those five-year plans mapped out I think they're really important especially for women as I said we do get knocked off our path in terms of you know um, our trajectory so that's that is important Um, but how do you know when when it's right for you you just get that feeling don't you it's that vibe Mm. And, and it's interesting you said obviously you, this job you you did get and it helped massively it sounds like like you sort of said that the person who interviewed you was a woman as well and and she understood some things so do you do you now are you, are you aware that there is like you're in that position now you've you've reached that leadership position you're you're going to be more aware of why a gap might be in a cv i mean are you aware of do you think there is a sort of is it going in the right direction are more women able to help more women into those roles not that that really should be the way it is but maybe that's how it's going to have to be at least for a little while yet I don't think there's any wrong with allies and I certainly don't think there's any wrong with having um an army of 
women to support you. And one of the things that you need to have is you need to have women at the end of their careers, in the middle of their careers, and people that are women that are just starting their careers in as your colleagues, because you help each other. It's a chain. You know, you reach out to help the, the person that's coming up the ladder and the person above you reaches down to help you. And building those chains of allies is really important. And one of the things that I think is incredibly important and, and actually quite special about places like Twitter, if, you, if you've created your timeline correctly, is that there are plenty of women that are out there to help you. And you've only got to ask, usually, um, and I've certainly helped. I've helped a few NQTs get on the international ladder, and it's not for, for for monetary gain or anything like that. It's simply just to make sure that we've got a really good chain of women coming up and doing the right thing by other women. So whenever people say, "Oh, well, how can I thank you?" I always say, "Pay it forward. Help somebody that needs your support, whether you know whether it's in your school, whether it's somebody on Twitter, whatever it is. Just pay it forward because it's so so important to help each other." I mean, obviously, one thing about the international school market is, in a way, like some regions of the world are, are like the cultures are so markedly different, you know, to the UK, to the Southeast Asia, to, to the Middle East, to South America, in, in how, you know, perceptions of, of, of male leaders, of female leaders, of, of people of colour, all these things. I mean, has that ever been your experience? Have you, have you ever seen the sort of cultural issues, leadership? I mean, the fact you're a leader in, in a Middle Eastern country is seems like a, a good thing. Um, so presumably it hasn't been a barrier to you, but do you think generally speaking, is that another barrier that you've got to overcome as well? The different culture, you're up against quite a lot in international education because you're up against the own, you, the, the kind of known patriarchal structures. The, there are systemic racist issues as well. And then you're up against the, the country's perception as well. And certainly in Thailand, um, it was felt that white faces and female faces in primary school especially were very much um, the preferred uh, teaching staff. Um, and, it, and it is difficult because you have to educate the parents as well as the children about race and about gender. Um, and that does pose difficulties. Now, you mentioned that I'm in the Middle East and actually Bahrain is probably one of the most um, forward thinking in terms of women's rights. Um, you know, women have had education here since the early part of the 19th century. Um uh, sorry, 20th century. You know, they're, they've, they've been allowed to drive for, for, for 50, 60 years. There is a plenty of thing misconceptions about the Middle East. And, and there are plenty of female entrepreneurs in, in Bahrain and plenty of female uh, principals as well. Um, in fact, the head of the, the Quality Assurance Council here is a female. So there are plenty of things that you can aspire to. If you can see it, you can be it as a phrase that I particularly like. Um, but you do need to change the perceptions and it's places like Asia where, you know, things like skin lightning creams are still very much sold on the counters alongside sweets for, for children. Um, you know, you are up against that and it is difficult to change those perceptions because it's part of a, a wider issue in, in those societies. Um, female heads in Thailand there were two when I was teaching there. And I know this because I did a big uh, assembly on International Women's Day and I did my, my due diligence. And there were two female head teachers in Thailand at that time. And Thailand has a, a huge capacity of international schools. And it's because that white male dominance is, is very much part of the, the fabric of society there. Yes, I mean, that's a really good insight in, into that problem. And it's almost like you can understand to a point why the people who are in charge keep appointing the same type of people because it's like i used to work in the technology industry and there's a famous phrase which is 
no one ever got fired for buying IBM, meaning, you know, you can't really be held responsible if you just do the thing that everyone else has done before you because you're just playing it safe. And you can imagine how that manifests in leadership. It's like you've got some candidates and one is the the one everyone expects to be appointed because they look like what they expect to be appointed. You can see why that might influence your thinking. And that's something that's hard to break that, but that's what we've got to do, isn't it? You've got to show that actually a diversity of leadership makes for a better education system because you're getting a diversity of ideas, of opinions, of insights, of leadership styles, of, of you know, and that sort of is a positive cycle, but it's, it's hard to break that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because in the first school that I worked in, it, as I said, it was dominated um, by Thai um, local people. And, I, and again, the, I'm not making a judgment on that, but my eldest son um, was the only mixed race boy in his class. And they, he, I mean, he's got a big afro and they love to touch his hair. And this is quite a common thing for black people across the world that, you know, the hair um, is something that people want to touch. But there was this one particular little girl that he became quite good friends with, but her parents were not happy that she was, um, you know, friends with a boy and a black boy at that. So you find as a parent as well, it's like, how can I protect my children? And, and moving into the second school, I um I was really lucky because it was much more cosmopolitan. It was right in the middle of Bangkok. Um, and he made some lovely friends that he's still friends with today. And actually, parents who send their kids to those types of international schools are internationally minded. And they don't mind if they have an Asian teacher or a black teacher, as long as they are a good teacher. Yes, you're absolutely right. You've been a good teacher. That that really should be the guiding thing for everything. Um, unfortunately, it's not always the way. But I mean, one thing... You're obviously from talking to you. I think anyone listening to this will, will, will sound like you, you clearly quite quite a sort of a driven person, and you know you've talked about five year plans, and you know being willing to sort of go into the national scene. That's a big life change. But of course, there, there are some people who have all the talents to be a leader, but they don't always know how to sort of articulate that. They don't know how to sort of manifest it, or and or a lot of the time they get overlooked because they aren't willing to sort of put themselves forward. Um, and that often is the case. It seems more so with with female teachers than male teachers. What do you think, and, and is there anything you do, or how can how can we get better at spotting people with leadership potential, if, even if they themselves don't realise it? And again, particularly obviously with with female leaders, you know, is that saying well, people, current leaders, whether that's a white male or you know someone like yourself, whatever it is, people need to open their eyes a bit more and not just look at the obvious replacement, but look around and sort of be a bit willing to say, you know what, actually that person there, they they're showing all the attributes they need, and I should say to them, you've have you ever thought about stepping up? I, I think this comes from having a culture of conversations in your school corridors and the staff room. And it comes from your middle leaders knowing their people that they're line managing. It comes from your senior staff knowing what your middle leaders um, are thinking about their careers. And it's also about a little bit of bravery. I think our profession suffers from a, a huge ego problem. And whenever whenever there, there's a challenge to your leadership or somebody wants to become a head teacher or they want to become a head of year, whatever it might be, it instantly looks a little bit, you know, like, oh, do they want to take my spot? And actually, there's room at the table. And if there isn't room at the table, there are plenty of new tables that open up around the world. Um, but mentoring, coaching, having that dialogue between staff at different levels in the school is really important. Um, it's a bit like that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And and if you let, if you actually listen to what children say, they will come out of all sorts of different things. And it's about asking teachers the same about their careers. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? You know, what's your plan? And, and open-ended questions so that you can actually really listen. Um, 
but I think we get tied up in so much of the the you know minutiae and the the administration that comes with the job that we forget actually that sometimes a conversation is all it takes to to move somebody on um or, you know, in a, in a positive way and to to inspire somebody um it, i know that when i was leaving my job in london i had a really good form tutor and he wanted to be ahead of year and i was like right do you know come and shadow me come and come and spend some time in the office and I mean, if you've spent any time in a head of years office, you'll know like it's like Piccadilly Circus. It is a really busy place, but you pick up so much stuff from shadowing a member of staff. And if you have somebody in your school that you, you know, you, you admire professionally, ask them to shadow them. Just see that if you can have a look at parts of their job, that would be the first piece of advice. And I think SLT and SMT yeah. really need to be open to this idea that, you know, shadowing, coaching, mentoring is a way that you raise your staff. And we know all the cliches about, you know, good people don't leave, you know, companies, they leave people. And it's so true. You can build a really strong team if you give them something to aspire to. Um, one of our teachers has just finished her international PGCE with us. And my, I was like, brilliant, what next? And she was like, oh, I, I'm really interested in the curriculum. Brilliant. How can we support you? How can we move you in that direction? What, what would you like from us? And if the answer yeah. is, I don't know, the next question is, well, Go and find out. Let's find out together. And it's yeah. having those conversations that really make teaching worthwhile. And, and do you, I mean, that, that sort of conversation there is, is a nice example, but do you, are you quietly confident that all this stuff is moving in the right direction? Are you, do you still get frustrated with things you see? Are there, you know, do you sort of see the formation of leadership groups for women? And you think, oh, that's what I want to see. I mean, where do you think we're at in this journey? I think we are. Uh, an interesting point in education there's lots of different conversations that are beginning to shape the way that we teach the 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 curriculum uh leadership all sorts um and i think it needs to be an ongoing conversation i don't think we're anywhere near the the point where i can stand up and say you know there are more women head teachers than men um i mean that would be you know fantastic for a career that has so many women teachers you know, to move into headship, it's still it's still an unmet that balance of head teachers yeah. that are male versus the women teachers in the profession is still very much tipped in their favour. But we are able to start having these conversations. So the more people that are prepared to come forward um, and talk about their experiences, and the more schools are willing to be flexible about you know picking children up from school or going to school plays, the more that we can start to see how tricky it is to manage all of those things if you're a woman. Um, one of the things I love about my executive head is one of our teachers has got children in a, a different school because they don't, they're don't not the same age as um, the ones we have in ours. And she lets her go and pick them up every day. She just adjusted the timetable to make sure that she could leave her on time to go and collect them. I mean, that is pretty special. So, yeah. and obviously for, for we're a small school, so we're able to make more accommodations. But Actually, if you were able to give your staff that level of flexibility in, in other schools, you would see more women climbing the, the leadership ladder because you would, that's inspirational. She's like, I want to be ahead. I want to be able to, you know, lead like that. So, so she'll, 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 I know she'll end up as a head teacher eventually. And that will be her experience that she takes through because she was given that opportunity. She'll give others that opportunity. Yeah, that's a great example, isn't it? And like you say, in some ways, you see, it seems sort of like, well, schools should be like that, shouldn't they? Because they spend the, they're in the business of children, of seeing how important time with, with family is, of, of education, of all that kind of good stuff. So giving parents time to have the, those kind of 
important times with their own families is like it seems to be incumbent on that on the profession as like you say to your point that of course sometimes the reality of time and levels of pupils and teachers and all that makes it hard but if you can do that and as you say for that that teaching now that's a real sort of inspiring sort of oh you can lead and be kind and nice and thoughtful you don't have to be ruthless and and you know you know climb over everyone to get to the top which i think is and that's what on university i've sort of brought up a question there but that's a lot of thing about leadership isn't it it's always presented so often presented in the modern world as a really sort of ruthless and you've got to be nasty and you've got to be an alan sugar type and all that but I mean, you don't come across like that. So I mean, do you think is that you know you think someone's leadership is sent is sent too much like that, and that puts people off? And actually, it shows you can be good at your job, but you can still be kind and thoughtful and, and open to what people need. You know, you know, I don't understand how as a as a profession how we've got so caught up in this nastiness that seems to pervade, you know, uh, across many schools, whether international or or in the UK. Um, it's a it's really a case of just knowing yourself, knowing what your values are, your why. I'll refer to that again, and knowing yeah. that actually, how would you want to be treated? I've sat in so many meetings with with, with head teachers or, or line managers, and they've spoken to me like I'm one of the children, and that really irritates me about teaching. Is that we seem to talk to adults who are you know, qualified, they've been to university, they've got all of their, you know, letters after their name, and we talk to them like they are six-year-olds. And I don't, and sometimes we actually talk to them worse than six-year-olds. We don't talk to six-year-olds the way we talk to some teachers. And I just treat everybody the way that I would want to be treated. So if somebody's running late for work, how are you? Is everything okay? And, you know, is it's far better than turning around, you're late. You know, I, I, there could be a perfectly good reason why that person's running late. And it could be that anything can happen. And I'm so... Maybe it's because of the way that, um, I don't know, the, 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 the different conversations I've had with um, teachers. I remember one head teacher said to me that, um, you know, that I wasn't ready for leadership because I'd had a baby. And I was like, ah, OK. You know, and you, ta- and you take those conversations to heart and you have to wonder about how much internal, internalising that, ha- that, that you take on board. Yeah. And I just would never, I would never say that to somebody because... We're real people, you know, people's relatives might pass away. There could be a divorce in the background. There could be financial pressures. There could be all sorts. Who am I to, to, to demand that you're, you know, you're at work on time when you 95% of the time you are? There must be a good reason why this is happening. And I need to find out because if I'm not finding out what's happening in your personal life, you're going into a classroom and you're teaching children and it's not a, an easy environment to be in. So mm. teachers need to have that. It's very tricky. Children pick up on stuff. And if you're in a bad mood, your whole class will end up in a bad mood or behaviour issues will start. So we need to keep the school on an even keel. And the way to do that is to keep the leadership on an even keel. I have no I have no intention of ever shouting at an adult because they're an adult. And I have no intention of shouting at a teacher because they're a colleague. And I have no intention of shouting at a child because they're a child. So we need to be very clear about who we are as people and about how we treat people. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a powerful answer. I think, you know, again, it just shows, you know, it's, it's about the, the temperament for leadership is not what often it seems to, well, and I would fully agree with everything you said there, is it's not what often I think is presented through the mainstream media is what a good leader is, I think. And it, it's something much more subtle and nuanced and, and personable and, like you said, human than that. And those things you, you touched on there. So, yeah, I think that's a very interesting answer. And, and I think there's something that we can't really avoid talking about either, which is the pandemic and whether you think this is relevant or not. But I mean, do you think the pandemic at all has, would have influenced anything here around leadership? Do you think it would, you know, because new ways of thinking, because people maybe have had to step up and do things they didn't have to do before or the sort of 
the, the, the pressures that came and, you know, it was like, um, you know, you, you've never done this before, you're going to have to sort this new thing out for us. And you, you, again, do you see any evidence of anything like that? Do you think that, or is it, or is it, is everyone desperate to get back to normality and it does the same sort of, we're back to where we were 18 months ago? The shift in international education has been that we have become so much more focused on well-being, um, mm. perhaps more so than the UK. Um, and if you look at any articles on LinkedIn um, from head teachers, they are talking about staff well-being. And I think that we are paying more than lip service now to well-being because we understand the it's that experience, isn't it? I have experienced not being able to go home and see my family as millions of and thousands of other teachers have experienced that as well in teaching internationally. But it wasn't just a thing that hit a teacher, it hit head teachers as well. So if our leadership is shaped by experiences, we've all had this very, you know, deep shared experience. And I do think it has made a difference in the way that we treat people. Um, and I hope that that will continue. There, there is no need to be ruthless. There really isn't. You know, that, you know that obviously you're, you need to temper the business side of things because international schools, many of them are for profit. But you can do that in a way that has a balancing effect. Um, in terms of COVID, I think that wellbeing is here to stay and I really hope it is. It's certainly something that's very central at our school um, as, a, as a taught subject. Um, we don't have the catch-up narrative that uh, the UK schools are, you know, talking about. And I think, again, we were just quicker out of the blocks in terms of how to deal with the, 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 the teaching and learning side of it. And many international schools stepped up the game. But that comes with a parent body who were ready to access that through their iPads, their laptops, their high-speed internet. And I'm acutely aware that not every parent and family in the UK would have that. And international schools are... By their very nature, they have a, a rich and wealthy, um, you know, set of parents. So, yeah, I think international. I think international teaching is looking very positive in terms of new experiences shaping recruitment, shaping curriculums, and I do think it's quite dynamic at the moment. And I'm really positive about where it will lead in terms of, especially female leaders um, and diversity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's a lot, a lot, a lot of what we're seeing on those things that that could well manifest into yeah continual sort of um, uh, organic evolution of, of, of how the international sector going forward. And you're right, well-being, like it's very interesting. I've talked to friends in other sectors, actually, not not in education, just just friends who work in different sectors, and they were saying their companies have become a lot more well-being focused. So maybe this is one of the things that will come out of the pandemic quite strongly. Is that is that sort of actual, like you say, not lip service, but real sort of embedded corporate culture around well-being because i guess ultimately you know your staff are your most important asset and so if they're not well the business can't be as well as it could be so addressing that is an important thing out of an out of a school budget your staffing costs is your biggest expenditure and if your staff is your biggest expenditure that's got to be the thing that you look after most and you know that's like having a bentley in the garage and you know allowing it to go rusty you know it's, yeah. it's worth a lot of money and if you are, if you're going to do it properly, you've got to start with looking after your staff. So things like, you know, being off sick for stress, for example, or, you know, we've got to get to the bottom of those things because those are what actually cost the, the machine to stop working. And we, yeah. you know, we have to take that seriously. So I think that head teachers are much more, um, aware of the well-being of their staff because of those things. But it comes back to experience, doesn't it? If I've experienced something and I'm sharing that experience with teachers in my school, you know, like as I said, I've not been able to go home and see the family. And I'm also, that gives me a, a level of empathy. And I think the more 
you experience, the more you see things through those different lenses, being a mum, being a woman, whatever it might be, you you do shape your leadership style. Um, and you learn more from bad leadership than you do from good. Unfortunately, we take good leadership for granted. Um, so, mm. so, you know, when we come across bad leadership, we, we huff and puff and, oh, well, you know, we could do things better or that's not how you do it. And that spurs you on a little bit more to perhaps use that experience to become the opposite of what you've seen. Um, and when you work in, a, in an academy chain in the UK and you see how ruthless that can be, that shapes your experience to kind of go, well, actually, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want that as my on my CV. I want to be something different. And I think international teaching has definitely given me the style of being different and being able able to be different. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think seeing bad leadership, of which, you know, I, I too, certainly not a Tez um, elsewhere, I've, I've had experience that does shape you sort of, you look at the opposite and then, well, I don't, that was terrible. So what would you do the opposite in that situation? Yes, I think that's a, a very good point. Um, uh, maybe as a, as a final thing then, I mean, obviously we've talked about your your career and, and you know, what you had to do to, to, to get to where you want to be and, and you know, so, sure, still more places to go as well. But are there any sort of like, maybe like top three or sort of, or maybe not a list, but just sort of things, advice you'd give anyone listening to this, uh, again, particularly some, anyone who wants to achieve leadership, but particularly any, any um, women who may be listening, advice that you'd give that, you know, you think really translates and they could take on board and think that's, that's how you can sort of get to that next stage of your career. I think the first thing that anybody that's aspiring to, to move into leadership is to establish their why. Why are they doing it? You know, is there, is, is there a burning desire to be a leader or is it about the money? Because those two things are very different. Um, I would also suggest that they reach out to other women in jobs. Um, and I'm certainly happy to have people reach out to me to talk about anything that we've discussed or anything else. Um, and I think that they also need to make sure that they are putting themselves, uh, their CV together with as much CPD as possible. And again, I know that that's difficult being a mum, but there are plenty of things that you can do to, to put that CV together and to establish that first point, which is your why. Why are you doing this? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? If you say to start with that question, because I think you're right, I think a lot of people maybe feel that pressure to be able to achieve leadership because it's kind of like, well, that's the career path, right? There is no other, you you do this, you do that, you get to become a leader and, and oh, you get, yeah, like you say, you get paid well and all the prestige comes with that. But then if you get there and think, I don't really enjoy this, I actually prefer being in the classroom or I prefer being in middle leadership, whatever it might be, it's a funny place to be, isn't it? So I think asking yourself fundamentally, do you want to be a leader or why do you want to be a leader is, is, is I mean, when you ask yourself that question, though, I mean, when, did you, if you asked yourself that question, what were the answers? What, what was your why? My why was because I wanted to establish a different perspective in education and I wanted to work in a school or lead a school that really placed well-being and, and fundamentally children's happiness at its centre. And as I said, Eaton House married all of those wish lists. And my wish list was small class sizes, a smaller school, and a much, um, you know, much more uh, focused approach to children's learning um, that stepped away from the traditional realms of British schools internationally. So that was what was my why. And as I said, it's a, it's a circle that you, you need to square for yourself. But you start with your why, you put your feelers out to the schools or to the people that you think, you know, align with your values and your why, and you go from there. Um, and again, you know, if you if you work with somebody that's inspirational, whether they're male or female, ask them to sh- ask if you can shadow them, ask if you can just have an insight, a conversation with them. And if there are senior leaders listening to this 
and you know that you've got talent in your school, go and nurture it. Go and find out what, you know, your teacher's why is and see if it can be utilised in your school. Great. I mean, I think that's the, that seems like a really good place to leave. Like I say a positive call to actions, as they say. So I think that's great. And um, yeah, I mean, so many interesting aspects we talked about there and you know, such, a, such a big and important topic. I think it's great to get, get sort of insights and the honesty and the sort of the frontline experience that you've had going through this. And hopefully, like you say, if people listening are inspired by that and want to know more, then obviously you're very contactable and on, on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle again? It's at Knight Williams. And that's Knight with a, with a K. It is, yeah. Yeah, Knight Williams, yes. So I can I can definitely recommend Julia is very approachable. Um, so if you have any questions for her, I definitely recommend getting in touch on Twitter and or, or through the through this website, whatever it might be. Um, but certainly for the, for this conversation, thank you so much for everything you shared and look forward to keeping in touch for the future. Fantastic. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much.